So this evening, I'd like to speak about uh, practicing with states of mind and heart, continuing from the um, instructions in the morning and giving a broader perspective for this uh, aspect of our practice. And before focusing on that theme itself, I wanted to say just a little bit about the kind of the vision or the sense of what we're doing here and how it connects with um, other kinds of transformative work that we might do in our daily lives and in other domains. Because it can be some sense of life within the structure of a retreat. Is this how we're supposed to live out in the world? Just to walk to work, lifting, moving, (laughs) placing, (laughs) shifting, uh, just to sit there in a meeting and notice anger, joy, and so forth. And and so it's useful to to understand the... um, at least one way of seeing what we're doing in relation to, as it were, the larger life. And in a way, what we're doing here is we're really focusing on what we might call uh, inner work, inner meditative work, supported by a community, but a kind of individual inner work where our attention is really turned inside, as it were. And the intention there is to have this uh, space of quiet, uh, of safety, relative safety, a sense of um, protection, being cared for, in which we can, in a sense, open up and explore our own nature and some of our own depths. And as we do that, we grow in certain qualities, which are really the intentions of this practice. We grow in the qualities of wisdom and compassion and mindfulness, certain amount of courage, certain amount of equanimity, uh, an increased ability to be with a range of um, experiences and keep one's center, keep one's balance. And we do that through the, through this practice. and. We, as we do that, we also, in a way, open up to some of the depths of human nature. We study ourselves as a kind of uh, case study. So, I might say, case study number one, me. <laughs> and and we, we use that as a way to really... Uh, go into the very nature of awareness, of consciousness, of love, the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart. For most of us, our intention is to do so not so much because we want to live in a retreat or a retreat-like environment all of our lives, but rather because the qualities that we develop are really crucial for whatever it is we feel called to do, whether we are parenting or working or helping to restore the environment and uh, protect against damage or helping with social service or social change or teaching 
or working in the health field or uh, being a teacher or educator. In all of the, these areas, the qualities that we're developing here are very crucial. And there's this, I think, a very powerful way that the culture is being shifted some as we really ask the question of what would it be to have a culture uh, of awakening, a culture of cultivating wisdom and compassion. And we know that um, the dominant forces in society, even though they sometimes spout those words, are, seem to be quite far from that as being at the center. What seems to be at the center is power, making money, control. Not all there is, but that's, that's quite strong, isn't it? Don't have to have a doctorate in political science to know that. <laughs> and, and so um, we can bring these qualities that we're developing, this ab- increased ability to know what's happening in the moment and bring that into a work situation so that we may, for example, um, know what's happening inside me when I'm in relationship with another so that we can, in the long run, have a deeper knowledge of the phenomena of anger and joy and love so that there is a kind of natural empathy and compassion that develops, less of a sense of separation, more of a sense that this is one um, shared human nature and even beyond that, one shared sense of awareness and consciousness and life. And there does grow, as we do this practice, a, a heightened sense of interdependence. Interdependence is right at the heart of the teachings of the Buddha, as, as, as well as of other uh, spiritual traditions. And so I think keeping that larger perspective that we're cultivating qualities which we uh, can bring out into the larger world in different ways. And for me, one of the great um, creative uh, imperatives of our time is to find ways to have this, uh, this cultivation of wisdom and compassion be brought increasingly into uh, daily life and the very nature of our society. You know, it's been a special interest of mine, as some of you know. And for example, uh, next year, I'll be co-teaching a retreat on bringing these qualities into speech and interaction, including conflict. We have a retreat that brings together the disciplines of wise speech and mindfulness and uh, nonviolent communication. It will be a seven-day retreat in which we'll actually be more interactive in ways that we hope can have a lot of uh, impact on people's lives. And I think were it done more widely, could have a big impact on the world. You know, and in other activities that I do, some of you know that I'm, I, I direct a program uh, here at Spirit Rock called The Path of Engagement, which is also trying to make the connection between this inner work and social service and social change. We have uh, 50 people in the program who are, who are all deeply engaged in society, but are looking for that uh, interface of the inner work uh, and the outer work, as it were. And so what we're doing here is really focusing on that inner work. And towards the end of the retreat, I'll try to make some of those connections, talking more about daily life. But in a way, we're here to go further into the depths of our own experience, 
our own personal experience and increasingly into the universal nature of mind and heart and so forth. And so it's quite something actually. And, and I also wanted to say just a few more words about mindfulness because uh, in, in uh, exploring the theme tonight that is practicing with thoughts and emotions, in a way we're exploring what's uh, often called the uh, third foundation of mindfulness, that is uh, mindfulness of states of mind and heart. There's more that I'll talk about tonight. I'll also talk about how we practice and intervene actively in working with thoughts and emotions, which is, goes beyond simple mindfulness. But it's helpful to uh, remember th- uh, some of these qualities of mindfulness. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the mystery of mindfulness. The Miracle of Mindfulness is the name of one of his books. Beautiful book. And it really points to the way that there's something that when we explore consciousness and awareness, there's something quite magical that can, that, that can develop. There can be a sense of the, uh, especially as the mind gets more still, of the magic of experience. Some of you may be experiencing this, that when the mind gets still, there's a kind of sparkle to things. They glisten. They uh, Sometimes one sees things quite differently. There's a beautiful passage uh, in in a, a talk with uh, the Thai, the late Thai teacher, Achan Cha, who was Jack Kornfield's teacher, who I think points to that, that mysterious and even magical quality of awareness which we, which we can access. This is what Achan Cha said. He was asked a question, actually, when Jack Kornfield was a, a young monk, he asked him this question. Is it necessary to sit for very long periods of time? You might be asking that question yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Achan Chah, now he was speaking from the perspective of being at a monastery. Here's what Achan Chah said. Is it necessary to sit for very long periods of time? No, sitting for hours on end is not necessary. Some people think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I have seen chickens sit on their nests for days on end. (laughs) Wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as soon as you awaken in the morning and should continue until you fall asleep. Don't be concerned about how long you can sit. What's important is only that you keep watchful, whether you're walking or sitting or going to the bathroom. Each person has his or her own natural pace. Some of you will die at age 50, some at age 65, and some at age 90. So too, your practices will not be identical. Don't think or worry about this. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. And so cultivating those qualities of mindfulness, that quality of this direct awareness, this direct knowing, the non-reactivity, the ability to be present with something increasingly without trying to either grab hold of it or push it away. Not so easy. Takes, takes practice, takes training. 
it's actually mindfulness has these other mysterious qualities. It's, it's, there's something about mindfulness in the state of non-reactivity which is very close to a state of peace. There's something that is deeply peaceful. And as we further mindfulness and go, as it were, deeper into it, we, act, we can access those qualities. In some traditions, it's actually said that mindfulness, partaking of awareness, partakes of the sacred. In many traditions, awareness itself is taken to be the nature of the sacred. And mindfulness is a doorway into the sacred in that way. There's also a quality of mindfulness in which we are invited to just be present, as Achan Chah said, to just be present, to notice, to be careful of our expectations. Near the end of the third day, each of us have studied our expectations and perhaps have a little more spaciousness around them. Is that true of anyone? Just, just a few raise their hand, but it might be true of many of us, that there's something about that that is really, we invite this uh, giving of our time to being aware, rather than to having this or that happen, rather than to having, let me duplicate that state of peace from the four o'clock meta, please. <laughs> you know that we, we, uh, we can watch those thoughts, but there's, as we deepen in practice, there's more of a kind of, we could call it a kind of surrender to the present moment. Doesn't mean not acting or not changing, but there's some way that we increasingly trust in the unfolding and the opening of experience. It's really based on the, increasingly on the sense that we come to know ourselves more and more from our depths that, that, that the deeper parts of ourselves are wisdom and love and compassion and a certain spaciousness of awareness. And that's part of what, as practice matures, that comes to be uh, what in Buddhist practice is called a kind of verified faith. It's a kind of faith that's very helpful, but it comes out of experience. It's not a blind faith. I wanted to read a passage from the, the Sufi Uh, poet Rumi, who expresses something very similar to the sense of just being mindful as the key and being able to be present with what's there. This is what Rumi said. It's a poem that some of you may know. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected uh, visitor. And the little bug has come. (laughs) That that comes every time for the talk. (laughs) It's here, just so you know. This being human is a guest house. Can you see it? It's right here. Every morning, a new arrival. (laughs) A joy, a depression, a meanness, a bug. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. Mm. Deep, huh? (laughs) 
the dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And so as we practice with uh, thoughts and emotions, we open to this very specific realm where we cultivate mindfulness and also even beyond the mindfulness, a skill in working with both uh, beautiful and difficult states of mind and heart. In the text on the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha talks rather briefly about mindfulness of states of mind and heart. And he says that it's very crucial to know the states of mind and heart that are there, and particularly to know their, their nature. And so he mentions a number of them. He mentions a greed and its opposite generosity. He mentions hatred and also love. He mentions delusion and also wisdom. He mentions a contracted state and also a non-contracted state. He mentions a distracted state and also a non-distracted state. And so the mindfulness is really to know what's there. There's a very um, helpful model, I think, for working with mindfulness of states of mind and heart. And it goes by the acronym of RAIN, R-A-I-N. And you might find it very useful as a way of working with states of mind and heart. And it goes like this. R stands for recognition. A stands for acceptance. I stands for inquiry and investigation. And um, N stands for non-identification. RAIN. And it is really a kind of sequential way of working with states of mind and heart. So if you, if you uh, have a challenging state of mind or heart, you can really invoke these four qualities. And I want to go over them each briefly because it's a very, uh, it's a very simple but also skillful way uh, to work with states of mind or heart. And then I want to talk in some detail about um, uh, one emotion and one um, challenging state, what we might call more a state of mind, that the state of, of judgment, particularly self-judgment. I want to go into a little more detail to show how to work with those and talk quite a bit out of my own experience. So the, the R of RAIN stands for recognition. And this is something we're familiar with. This is the naming. This is the noting. This is the uh, way of actually noticing what's there and naming it to ourselves. As I mentioned, it's that naming has a power to it. It has the power in a way to kind of break a trance. Just to name something helps us really to, uh, to know that it's there. It's something, again, we can bring into uh, our meditation here. We can bring it into daily life. Often, in, for me, in outside of retreats, when I go to a meeting, uh, particularly when I'm not facilitating, I often do a mindfulness log. I just have a piece of paper in front of me, and I do a log just of what's happening in my own mind. You know, um, I might write down, and I write it down so I'm actually clear, and it actually helps me to act more skillfully. So I might write down, 
um, happiness at that idea of that person or something like that. Or I might write down getting tired. Or I might write down um, becoming impatient, sarcastic thoughts developing. And you see that it's actually pretty crucial. And this, I'm giving a sense of how this can be very powerful in daily life because what happens when we're not mindful of sarcastic thoughts developing? <laughs> sarcastic thoughts do more than develop. They, <laughs> they manifest. And not uncommonly, sarcastic thoughts from another return to the sender. And so there's a way that when I do that practice, it actually acts as a kind of protection that I notice, oh, here's what's happening internally, and I don't have to go there. And so in a way that recognition can, in a sense, break the spell, break the trance, very crucial, as it does here. And sometimes it can feel ineffective just to name it, just to recognize, but it actually has a lot of power. It is, as it were, it's a... um, um, it really is a way that the whole artifice, the whole construction that is normally unconscious starts to become conscious. And it shifts, and it's never really the same. Once we name it, even though sometimes in naming it, it can feel ineffectual. The state of mind or heart can feel very powerful, but the naming is crucial. It's crucial for... Um, sort of breaking the spell, and it's also crucial for letting us know what's happening so that our wisdom can arise. It's very simple in a way, but it can be very powerful just to name, you know, just in in a relationship, just to name that this is happening can often be incredibly helpful and healing for a relationship of any kind, a work relationship or an intimate relationship, just to name, this is what I'm feeling, just to name something like that, very, very powerful because it really... It really it takes it from being hidden, it takes it from being suppressed, and it takes it from being unconscious. And that's huge. The A in RAIN stands for acceptance. And it's, not, it's acceptance not so much in the sense of, I accept that this is good, but more, I accept that this is present. I accept that this is here. We may accept it in that sense and still say it's good to get rid of this or it's good to transform it. So the acceptance in RAIN isn't about saying, oh, I'm feeling depression, what a good thing. You know, but it's really to note, oh, that's happening. It's really happening. It really, in that sense, it is a way of um, ending the fantasy, ending the trance in a way, and really knowing that this is real, it's here, and I can act on it. I can act skillfully, I can invoke again my wisdom. It also means that I'm not necessarily trying to get rid of it. And so I can really work with it skillfully. The I in RAIN stands for inquiry and investigation. And that can take different forms. It can take just the the noting, the seeing, the noting of how often it, something comes, a particular state of mind and heart, or it can be actually a, a kind of study, as we've, as, as we've often talked about mindfulness. One of the powers of mindfulness is its ability to go deeply into a phenomenon. So I can study my anger. I can really notice it. I can go deeply into it. I can take what 
might seem like a very solid mass, and I can actually study it and find it's made up of a lot of parts. I can notice the texture. I can notice the own, my own personal way that joy arises. I can know it more clearly. I can often, when I investigate something, it actually leads to something else. And I'll talk about that more in, in, in terms of the examples of, of anger and judgment. There's a wonderful uh, American teacher named Achan Sumedho. He's, he's a uh, monk who was a monk with Achan Cha. Achan just means teacher in, the, in Thai. So Achan Sumedho means teacher Sumedho. And, uh, and he is a very interesting guy with a great sense of humor. He comes and teaches retreats here about every two years. If you have a chance to study with him, he's great. I've done a few retreats with him. And um, he lives in England at a monastery there. And he has this wonderful sense of humor, but he also has some wonderful language. And one of the ways he talks about mindfulness in the sense of inquiries, he says, mindfulness lets us know it's like this. And he always holds his hand up. It's like this. It's like this. Joy is like this. Despair is like this. Anger is like this. And he holds his hand out. It's like... And and that's the quality of inquiry, to know what it is, to know more fully, to be with it, to see what it is. The last uh, aspect of the RAIN formula is non-identification. And that has to do with uh, basically not taking it personally, which is pretty big, (laughs) right? Uh, It's really seeing that, okay, anger is arising, but it's there, and in a sense, it's, I don't have to say that uh, because there's anger, I'm definitely an angry person, or because there's fear, I'm definitely a fearful person. It's more that we say, this is here, it's present, and we, we can actually, as much as we can, let go of that sense of, this is my essence. I am essentially a self-judgmental person. But it's rather to increasingly see the states of mind and heart as um, coming and going and having some of their own almost impersonal nature. Given certain conditions, fear will arise. Given certain conditions, anger will arise. Given certain inner and outer conditions, these arise. And so it's, it's more a willingness to look into the phenomenon and to, as the the teacher Stephen Levine says, not so much think of it as my anger, but think of it as the anger, the phenomenon of anger. That's happening to me now. Let me study it. Let me really look at it. And it also means to actually not buy into all the beliefs that come with a given state of mind and heart. That's saying a lot, isn't it? that most of our beliefs, I'm sorry, most of our states of mind and heart come with a whole set of assumptions, beliefs, conclusions, logical um, possibilities, and we tend to buy into all of them. And part of what it means to work with non-identification is to start to see those assumptions and those beliefs and to increasingly just come back to the phenomenon itself, you know, to come back to um, 
you know, again, if there's, you know, if there's anger present, I may have a whole set of beliefs about who did this, what I should do, the nature of reality, and it can go on and on. And so there's more of a just a coming back to looking at the phenomenon itself. Again, unpacking and separating the more direct experience from the interpretations we make. That's not to say that in the end we'll, we want to reject all the interpretations or all the ideas, but we want to certainly not assume them uncritically, to assume them without, without mindfulness. It's a little bit like the bumper stickers that I see in the Bay Area sometimes. See, some of you may have seen these. They say, don't believe it just because you thought it. That's pretty wise, isn't it? Imagine wisdom on bumper stickers. <laughs> don't believe it just because you thought it, meaning that um, just the fact that a thought and assumptions come through, and they come through my mind, I can, I can just say, OK, those are thoughts. Those are emotions. Let me just look at them. Let me see if they have validity. I don't have to assume that they do simply because I'm thinking them. And that, that's tremendously freeing. You know, to, to uh, let the thoughts, let the emotions be present in experience and let us then, let our wisdom sort out what's, what's valid or not. So one of the ways that we can also see that this model is in, and I've already been doing some of this, is to uh, give an example of um, one uh, pattern of emotion and one pattern of thought, and how to some some further ways to work with, uh, to work with both through mindfulness and through other other ways of working with thoughts and emotions. So I'll, I'll start first with uh, with anger, and I'll refer some to that um, retreat I was talking about, um, I think last night, where I was angry for ten days in a row, for about eighteen hours a day at the retreat. Sort of, you know, if someone had kind of X-ray vision, they would have seen fumes rising from my head, you know. And it was actually quite an extraordinary experience to to do that. It was very—I had never been angry for so long in a row, you know. And um, the the content of the—I'll tell you the content of the anger. It might be interesting, although it's not really so uh, crucial to to where I want to go. But I had actually—I had come to California. This was about, uh, I think, 1990. I had just moved to California, and I had been living in um, Kentucky and rural Ohio for seven years. And I had been uh, doing meditation. I had been a, like a young teacher, and I was teaching in those areas. Um, that's another story. I could tell a lot of stories about that. But it was... Um, um, because I was actually, I, was, I had a job at the University of Kentucky, and I was, my real intention was to um, uh, get to know the basketball coach better so the University of Kentucky basketball team could learn meditation because they were working on fear-based sports coaching. And, and I, I thought that if the University of Kentucky basketball team learned and got into meditation, the whole of the state would follow because in Kentucky, basketball is really, really big. And it's, I often have said that it's, it's bigger than Jesus, and Jesus is quite big in Kentucky. <laughs> so uh, anyway, but unfortunately, just as I was getting to know the coach, um, he got fired. But it really was. I mean, I'm getting a little, digressing a little bit, but 
but you know, their, their team, well, the coach, as many coaches do, they're based, they, everything was based on fear. And so what would happen with the team, they would, they, you know, they were one, they're one of the, like, whatever, you know, five, uh, whatever they call it, blue chip schools where they have perennially have the best teams in the country. One, you know, like UCLA and a few other, North Carolina, a few other teams like that. So I'm revealing that I have some background in sports here. So, so meditation doesn't mean you have to forget about sports. A- anyway, so, um, so their team, the team would always uh, be, do really, really well at the beginning of the season, and then they would inexplicably lose to lesser opponents. Same thing happened every year. You know, I, w- the, I was there for four years, and the same thing happened every year, and it's because they couldn't be in the moment. That when they, they, would, they had superior talent, but then they would make some mistakes, and because the coaching was based on fear, they would get paralyzed. They could not be in the moment, release the whatever, the sense of guilt or shame or don't want to look at the coach, and they got stuck. And it mm-hmm. happened over and over again. It actually happened when I was there in the NCAA finals. The same thing happened. And they, you know, with the same, because they were, they were, it was working on fear. And they didn't have a way of staying in the moment. So, of course, I thought, oh, meditation. And the whole of the state will change, and then probably neighboring states, and it'll just be a, just be a mass movement. And, you know, and um, so the coach got fired, so it didn't work. But, but still, thing, things are changing. There's actually a lot of use of mindfulness in sports. Very, very interesting. It's really, it's really been developing. And so... Um, so I was on this uh, retreat and, and was ang- angry quite a bit, uh, not more than quite a bit, uh, m- much of the time. And I want to I go through those uh, different dimensions as, as an illustration of how to work with something like anger. So the first would just be the, noming, the, the uh, noting, the naming, the recognizing, the R in rain, just to, just to see, oh yes, there's anger here, really to know that it's present. And of course, that, that can be really crucial in, in both here and in relationships, just to name it, to, to know that it's there, rather than denying it, uh, rather than, than trying to suppress it. And accepting it's really here. That would be the acceptance part of it. Yes, I'm really angry. I don't want to be angry, but it's happening. I don't want to be angry for 10 days in a row, 18 hours a day, but I can't deny it, it's really happening. You know? And so, as I mentioned, I was able in that retreat to work skillfully. Uh, Jack Kornfield was very, very skillful in, in working. Oh, I, n- I didn't get around to the content of why I was angry. I'm thinking, that's why I went to Kentucky. That's why I got into basketball and changing the world through meditation and sports and so forth. Um, and so, um, what it was was that I had been living there and I had been really having this deep commitment to making the meditation very real for daily life. You know, and I was in another part of the country and was really committed to that. And I came back here and it, I felt like a lot of the retreats, we were being treated somewhat like we were monks or nuns. And there wasn't much mention of daily life. And I got really angry about that because it's like I had been really dedicated. And, and there were probably other reasons I got really angry, but I was really angry. And that was the content of it. And you might say, and it's kind of interesting because I had certainly seen that before. But for whatever reason, I hadn't been angry in that way. You know, it wasn't particularly a new insight, but for whatever reason, the whole 
constellation, there was a tremendous amount of anger. And what was beautiful was that I got to really explore it through this quality of inquiry. And that's the eye, the um, eye in the rain, the third, the third aspect. And so I got to uh, really study it, notice it. Um, Jack Kornfield gave me a, um, a technique to use that, that it actually is sometimes used in, in some of the Burmese approaches to meditation, where um, what I did was at the end of every sitting, I took some notes on what actually was happening. I took some notes, just very, very brief, just for a minute or two, and um, in order to really track carefully what was happening. And I did this basically with every sitting and walking. And Jack asked me, after a few days, look at your notes, bring them together, and see what you found. And basically, it was really a way of inquiring. You know, because what I would note, he, he also gave me the guidance, really study what's there. And so I would find, okay, I would study anger. I would notice it's, um, there's a kind of fire. I would notice what it was like in the body. I would really explore, okay, what's it like in the body? How, is, how does it change? What's it like in the mind? And what was really interesting in that was that we, you know, I probably before that would have thought, okay, there's just, there's just anger. But what I actually found was that there were four or five or six different kinds of anger. You know? And you know, there was a really petty anger, a petty frustration, anger, reactivity. And then there was sometimes an anger that was really linked when I stayed with it the anger sometimes went to, um, went to, it moved, and it went to sadness. And I, when I would stay with the anger and be mindful and inquire into it, it changed, and it revealed that it was connected with sadness. And sometimes the sadness would have the, the voice. Um, I'm sad. My voice isn't being heard, something like that. My voice isn't being heard in the community. And, and, it would, and it, it's complex, of course. It goes into a lot of the psychological issues, you know, if, we, if I would investigate that. But sometimes I'd be sad. And then when I stayed with the sadness, sometimes I actually went into uh, love, the quality of love that developed, which is that I really care about this community. I really want it to be uh, healthy, let's say. That was at least in my own mind. And so that didn't happen immediately. That took, took uh, a number of days. But as I stayed with it, there was a kind of deepening that occurred. And the instructions that I was given was notice how things change. And I would notice that sometimes the anger, when I stayed with it for 20 minutes, it would shift to sadness. And then if I stayed with it some more, it would shift to love. You know, and there was, there was something quite beautiful, and I have seen that with other kinds of um, strong states, strong emotions, even ones we call negative, that when I would actually go deeper and go deeper, I would end up with a quality of love that would be very present. I have experienced that also with the quality of judgment that, I, you know, that I'm, I'm going to talk about in a moment. And sometimes, so sometimes it shifted like that. Sometimes the anger was like an Old Testament prophet full of righteous wrath. <laughs> you know, where I would say something like, you can do what you want, but cosmic justice will get you in the end. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and uh, yeah, that was an interesting voice to hear, like Donald, the Old Testament prophet, speaking. You know, and and that was, uh, and all of these would come from the inquiry. And it was what was interesting was that the uh, the anger wasn't simple. 
it went in, it went in three, four, or five directions mm -hmm. when I really inquired. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was mysterious. And I think, I think maybe you can get a sense of that the inquiry and the investigation can be very interesting. Another technique that, some, that you might want to try with states of mind and heart was sometimes I would deliberately check out the anger in the body. I would be with the anger in the body, and then sometimes I would go to it in the kind of the energy of the emotion itself. And then sometimes it was like I would be switching channels. The anger's happening. Let me investigate it by switching the channels. Here's what it's like in the body. Here's what's it, what it's like in the emotions. Here's what it's like in the mind. And you can, you can get a sense that after a while, whereas at the beginning I may have wanted to get rid of it, after a while it was pretty interesting and pretty fascinating. And there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of personal learning and there was a deep learning really about that quality of, um, of the different qualities of anger. And I have to say, for me, after that, anger has never been the same. You know, and it's, it's, it's one of the, the fruits of retreats like this. It doesn't always happen that we have a focus on, you know, maybe one quality of mind or one or two, but sometimes it happens like that. We get to really investigate. I know I've personally had retreats like that where I would be, you know, five or ten days just with fear, you know, or just with uh, certain qualities of judgment. And it really permits this interest and, and deepening to occur. And lastly, you know, that quality of non-identification, after a while I got to really feel the energy of the anger is just moving. I wasn't taking it personally. There was this deep interest in studying it and investigating it. That was not saying, oh my God, another day with anger. Mm -mm -mm. You must be really messed up, Donald. <laughs> you know, time for psychotherapy. Um, intensification or whatever, whatever, whatever I might say to myself. And so I think you can get that sense that it, it became more of something really, really interesting. And, and the emotions and the thoughts, when we have that quality of non-identification, can be more like what I was saying Stephen Levine says, it's the anger. It's this, this, this large phenomenon that has all these complexities that's really interesting to investigate. And as I was mentioning, when I really have that quality of mindfulness, sometimes it actually shifted and went, went deep into the quality of love, which again, I have found with most of these even really challenging emotions. And I'm not, I don't want to set up expectations. Oh, okay, I'll just sit with that fear I've been experiencing and maybe by tomorrow I'll just be in love. I, I, don't, I don't want to set up that expectation because remember, the only reason this happened for me was because I didn't have the expectations. And also, I had a, a number of years of practice at that point, so it was not, uh, you know, I, I was well into it. And a lot of it was hard, also. I don't mean to say it was just this wonderful, blissful study of anger. Some of it was quite hard and frustrating, and I'm probably romanticizing it a little bit. <laughs> I guess I, I, I'm guessing I am probably doing that just a little bit. But um, I have only myself to answer to, so <laughs> we shall see. So... So maybe just a, a few further words on, on, we can also do this with thoughts and work with thoughts in this way. It's a little bit harder because thoughts are more subtle and they're not so obviously manifesting in the body. But I want to mention a few ways in the context of the work that, uh, uh, that I and others have done with working with judgments, which, are, which judgments are pretty hard stuff to work with because they're very strong and persistent. And so again, 
the first, the first step is just to name them. And again, that gives some space, some degree of freedom, just to name their judgments here. You know, and we might name, you know, and I would say my practice for the first uh, 10 or 15 years was primarily just naming judgments. Judgments. And by judgments, I'm meaning typically harsh, negative views about self and or other. Judgment. Another judgment. A lot of judgments. Oh, that's a judgment too. That's a stealth judgment. <laughs> you know. And so just, just that noticing. So, and, then, and then at a certain point, uh, the quality of acceptance, the A in RAIN, the really saying, yes, this is really here. Yes, I'm really, I am judging. There's a certain letting go of some resistance to it actually being there. Very important for doing this work with, with uh, states of mind and heart. And then the, the mindfulness and the inquiry can be really, really powerful. You know, and I'll, I'll mention a few techniques. Again, it's a little bit harder with, with thoughts uh, because they're, they're quite subtle. Sometimes when our concentration gets quite deep, we can actually track thoughts very closely. And it can be very, very fascinating. When the mind is very still, sometimes we can just sit back and watch for thoughts appearing as if out of a black box, like little dots. When the mind gets very still, we can sometimes actually know just this little peep and know, oh, that was going to be a thought about my mother. And it just is this little speck, and it never comes into form, but with, with a, quite a deep level of concentration, one can sometimes experience that. It's pretty amazing. One gets a sense when the mind is still of the construction of consciousness and how that occurs. It's quite something to really to, to, to see that. We can also do something that maybe doesn't take as much concentration, which is sometime you might try just to imagine your mind as a kind of black box and just sit back and wait for thoughts and watch them. You might try that sometime. It's an interesting practice. The mind has to be somewhat quiet, but not real, real still. And just sit back and invite thoughts to be there and just notice them as they come. So that takes complete or fairly close to complete non-identification. You know, it's just, to, it's just to almost see the thoughts as like shooting stars in the sky, just to notice them and watch them. It can really be quite helpful. Another tool is that tool of sometimes when there are thoughts, shifting the channels, asking, there are a lot of repetitive thoughts, what's, the, uh, what is, what's there in my body? What's there in the emotions? That's a little harder when they're thoughts, but, but it can be a very useful to just switch the channels. And I mentioned yesterday a very helpful technique for repetitive thoughts is what we sometimes call the dropping down practice, where when they're repetitive thoughts, then there has to be a certain, quali- certain amount of stillness in the mind. We can bring the awareness to the body and the heart and just listen. And sometimes we can learn things about what's driving the thoughts. But what's crucial with that technique is number one, that the mind be still, and number two, that we really listen without thinking this should happen, figuring out what we think should happen, but just a very open listening. And that can, that can actually sometimes really tell us, you know, for example, if you're having, there's a technique that I do if I have an interpersonal difficulty and I find my mind really repeating the territory. Often, at least the way my mind works, it's because I'm actually not in touch with an underlying emotion. 
And when I work with the thought and just come bring my attention to my, my heart and my chest, typically I can actually know the emotion fairly quickly. And so it's a very helpful technique for, for working with repetitive thoughts. Because typically any thoughts that are keeping on coming, there's something that's driving it that's typically somewhat unconscious. And we can actually uh, inquire into that. And so uh, on one retreat when I was working a lot with judgments, this is, this is what I did. And I constantly brought my attention to my body and my heart. And what I found was that, and this was a time when I was actually, uh, this was some years ago, and I was actually judging myself quite harshly. You know, basically, I think I, I was trained to, to be somewhat of a perfectionist. Does anyone else have that tendency? Okay. Not so many, actually. It's... We're tired of raising our hands all the time. We're tired of raising our hands. <laughs> got, got it. Okay. How many are... Uh, okay, I won't. <laughs> got it. I think that I think is a, a kernel of truth there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, in any case, I, I would be when I would bring my attention and actually see what's driving the judgment, typically what I found was that there was some kind of unacknowledged pain that was driving the judgments. And I came to just notice that. And as I looked, I found that virtually with every judgment, there was some kind of unacknowledged pain that I was not in touch with that was driving the judgments. You know, if I was criticizing myself or something, there might be some kind of sadness or grief about the way something had happened. And I found that even when I would... Uh, be at a retreat and judge the, the cooks for having the condiments set up so it takes too long to get through the food line, a judgment that you may possibly have had recently. <laughs> <laughs> Even when I did that, I would tune in and I would actually notice, oh, there's impatience. There's impatience that's driving that fairly minor judgment. I would do it at, at um, traffic lights. You know, and I did this practice for about a year, actually probably more like close to two years, just really tracking the judgments and taking them into the body and noticing. And I found there was pain and that when I actually touched the pain and just stayed with it, some, of course, some pains are deeper than others. But when I did that, the pain tended to be released and the judgments tended to dry up. It was quite interesting. And I got so interested in this way that judgments were, were linked with unacknowledged pain that I could actually, for the time when I was doing a lot of that practice, I got really interested in being around judgmental people. Because I could actually feel there was a lot of empathy that came. And it's really a quality that when we do this practice, you can imagine if you go deeply into your own nature, you come to know anger, you come to know fear, you come to know judgment, you come to know um, joy, you come to know happiness, and it's not that different between us. It's very similar. And so there's this deep empathy that can develop as we do this practice. Simply from, from knowing, oh, I know that. Or from someone um, judging himself or herself or me or someone else, I, can, I tended at that time to be able to tune in and still often can do that and tune in and can really actually feel the pain beneath the judgment which is very, very helpful when people are judging me. You know, it means I don't, as it were, take the hook quite as easily. It's a very, and, and, and um, unfortunately, as I stopped, well, I, I should just say that um, after I stopped doing that practice so intensively, I didn't 
long so much to be around judgmental people that that capacity dried up. <laughs> but I, I, didn't, I didn't go out of my way to be with judgmental people, as I had done for some time. I said, oh, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me be with you. And <laughs> anyway, uh, and so there are these different ways of inquiring, dropping to the body, working with mindfulness, noticing the way they are, seeing how things develop, see how they unfold. Because we can, as we work with thoughts and emotions, as in my example of anger, sometimes they change. Sometimes they open up to something else. And it's part of this magic of mindfulness and practice that we can actually notice this, um, these deep links in, the, in our nature. And, how, and so we shouldn't necessarily think, oh, the anger, the judgment, that's all there is. It can open up. And the tendency with mindfulness as it opens up in a way that in the long run tends to be healing. And in some sense, healing, there's a deep healing that comes from being present to what's difficult or what's painful. You know, we have to do it in, as it were, in our own time in, in, with conditions that are supportive for that. But there can be a deep healing that occurs as we work with, with thoughts and emotions. What I love about this kind of work with thoughts and emotions is that it tends to reinforce this very spacious quality of mind. I've studied some with the Tibetan tradition of uh, Dzogchen, and it's sometimes said in those teachings that the deep nature of our being has three core qualities. There's clarity, there's warmth, and there's spaciousness. And what I found in doing this work with um, the practice with states of mind and states of heart is that when we go deeply into any of those phenomena, we can sometimes touch that quality of a deep clarity, a deep compassion, and a profound spaciousness that really can hold all experience. And it can lead to a profound sense of love and compassion. And I think I'll close with one of my favorite passages from the uh, Christian contemplative Thomas Merton, who lived in Kentucky. And I used to spend a lot of time at that monastery when I lived in Kentucky at the Abbey of Gethsemane. He said this. This was actually, how many people know of Thomas Merton? Another hand raising. (laughs) Yeah. A a wonderful uh, writer a Catholic monk who died in 1968, one of the men, one of the people who bridged the East and the West in this century, in the last century. A very, very, uh, very beautiful man. And he had that quality of ongoing mindfulness. And on one trip, I think he was going to the doctor's office in Louisville, which was about 40 or 50 uh, minutes from, from the monastery. And he happened to just be in a crowd and something just magically and mysteriously opened up in his consciousness and he went from the ordinary into that depth of that clarity, that warmth and that spaciousness. And this is what he later wrote in, the, in his journal. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of hearts. The depths of their hearts were neither sin nor desire 
your self-knowledge can reach the, the core of their reality. The person that each one is in God's eyes, so that's using Christian language. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem is that we would fall down and worship each other. So thank you very much for your attention. Let's just, yeah, thank you. Let's just sit quietly for a minute or two. letting whatever has been helpful from the talk and your own reflections be present. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of hearts, the depth of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem is that we would fall down and worship each other. Again, thank you so much for your, for your uh, kind and uh, continual attention. And we'll, have, we'll come back for the uh, nine o'clock metta in about half an hour. We have, it's, about, it's pretty much exactly 8.30 now, so we'll have a half an hour walking and then that last period of metta with the chanting. <laughs>